Hello, this is episode 288 of the Purple Psychology Podcast. I'm Nisha Riley. This podcast is on in-body practices, and particularly the overgrinding of practices. I know there's been a bit of a hiatus in the podcast, but that's because I've been experiencing a lot for the last two weeks, and I can think of a whole series of podcasts from this. It's unusual sometimes how things happen for me, so a series of events meant that I finally had the confidence to stop outsourcing body work. I would keep having particular student situations and I would feel that I wasn't good enough to do the body work with them, that I was too sensitive, that it was too my body. But other, as others say to me, like, you do so much body work because I have to in terms of what I take on from people. Like a long time ago, I realised that there's an excessive amount of sexual abuse in Ireland. And I had already come up with this statistic in my head from when I was in college in Galway that at least every one in four people I knew had been sexually abused. And so often when I worked with clients, my knees would really pain me afterwards. And it took me a while. I was like, what, why are my knees paining me? And there was this sense that I would drop my arm across my body in a kind of a protective manner, which meant that I was putting a huge amount of pressure on my knees. And I started doing Amatsu work, which is all about, it's a kind of a combination, I describe it almost as the energy of acupuncture with the physicality of martial arts. And it's all about the awareness of the alignment of your body and how much strain and stress you put your body under and how tired you feel by using your body in the wrong alignment. And so I started doing a lot of Pilates after working with clients so that the alignment of my body would be better and so that I would have a greater awareness of what postures I was mimicking in others as well when I was working with them, that I would make a point of keeping my physicality much more open rather than mimicking the physicality of the people opposite me. So that was partly how I started doing a lot of embodied work for myself. I realize as well that I really write from the pain signatures in my body. I think that that has become more and more evident. Ironically, the book I'm writing at the moment is the slowest book I've ever written because I don't have any of the experiences in the book. The experiences that I'm writing about are not my experiences. They're experiences of people that I've worked with or the root underlying sense of what I feel creates the lack of empowerment in women in particular and within mothers and within motherhood and those knock-on effects but they're not my experiences so I don't have these pain signatures with these experiences in my body to tap into to write effortlessly and that's quite a different journey for me. What happened was I worked with an adult on the other side of the world who was forming a new embodied practice they're just starting out and it reminded me of somebody else. It was a kind of a baby version of them, what I would imagine them to be having started out themselves 30 years ago. And the sort of aspects that really matter to their personality to give them the secureness, I suppose, to step out and do their own practice and create their own system right now. I had sent a kid for help who had a severe bodily reaction. And everyone was either patronizing to them in terms of belittling it to being a small amount of nerves 
or they said it was such a big deal that they couldn't deal with it till they were 15, which meant them losing their whole childhood. And I sometimes wonder if people actually hear what they say to children. I think one of the aspects that I find most painful in my work is when I meet even younger people who are five and six who have the whole weight of the world on them. Um, especially if they're struggling with literacy, and I just find that fundamentally wrong. Like, you know, our impacts of what our expectations are around education on people's childhoods are actually disgusting, and I sometimes don't see how people don't step out and see what they're doing. It really upsets me. And I suppose for me, I was fortunate enough growing up, for better or worse, to learn to compartmentalize my world, where I would have this beautiful zone at home where I could do everything, and I was a very capable, small human, to once I stepped out to the outside world, it was a travesty, and I couldn't do anything, and I was treated really badly. But at least I always had that sanctuary to come home to, and I learned very quickly how to compartmentalize my life so that I would get the enjoyment of the time out. And it did, I suppose, leave me with a fundamental fear of the outside world, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later on in why I ended up doing a practice earlier this year myself to help me with that fear. And then I got another request in my inbox from a transgender teen, and I was like, I'm not outsourcing this work. I, I know that they're going to need an aspect of this. But I'm not bringing anyone else into the arena right now. And certainly not until I find people who don't make lots of sweeping statements. And in fact, I think I'll probably end up recording a podcast on trans body dysmorphia because I did a lot of research thinking that I would be able to find a nice journal template structure for somebody to work with. And I read a lot of material from Australia, America, Sweden, the UK, and all of it was frankly quite disgusting in its assumptions. The, the whole premise of body dysmorphia was always spoken about in terms of having a mental illness, and there was a lot of sweeping statements around autism and Asperger's syndrome in particular that I've had a big problem with for a while in how those two things are being sort of, you're taking something that for me is not set in stone in any way. It's a series of societal conditions and characteristics that we're applying to a label. And then you're applying it to a journey. And then you're applying it to a gender freedom conversation. I prefer the idea of gender freedom. And you're kind of squashing those all into one bath and making a whole lot of horrible assumptions. So I can actually see that I will probably do a podcast on that once I've kind of stripped my head out. So for me, most embodied practices are overgrounded. And I'd like to talk through that process and how I have come to that thinking. As I see it, there are three trauma zones as such to work with with people. There's the crime zone, there's the heart space, and there's the sacral chakra which I see as the core. And I actually see that as being really the root 
need chakra, the most important one. And I, again, there's something brewing in me around the whole concept of Maslow's pyramids and which chakras we put first. And we tend to put a lot of emphasis on the root chakra and on a lot of base needs. And that zone in your body being very attached to your secureness and your materialistic wealth and your place in the world is quite interesting. Whereas I would always say that you can't be whole without being sexual. So I'm going to leave you to think about that. Which is why I think that this zone that I work with in people where it's pre-puberty and just um, on the cusp of starting puberty is such a big time in people's lives now. So the crown and the core are often seen as two halves. Not a whole core zone that's fed by the crane area and that the expanse that's possible. I've had some experiences that, you know, there's a lot of people over the pandemic in particular who've put out a lot of material and there's been a real movement towards all this awakening of the planet and this new energy coming in. And my first experience with this as well was going to an event in London in for the 11-11-11 and really hating the event if I'm honest and, and hating the manipulation of energy in the room and not really feeling that people were respectful with the energy. I realized that there's a lot in me that I innately need people to behave properly and respectfully and with awareness with energy. So a lot of people are very comfortable to throw all this energy out into the world from this area. And there's a real abuse of, of that area because no one seems to have considered how we live in this new expanse or this new awareness or how you expect teens to navigate a world without parameters. I'm not saying that I don't want there to be progress and that a lot of the parameters are outdated and I, I don't like them but you have to figure out how to navigate those and you have to figure out how to, how to navigate them energetically but a lot of people frankly haven't considered how we're going to navigate what I'm affectionately calling 5D bullshit and I work with the fallout of that destruction every day. You either destroy those around you where you destroy yourself. And a lot of spiritual teachers have also set themselves up as this being a way to control. It's like a zone that they draw people to. And they feel kind of special, like they're some sort of star belly snitches, and they aren't. Because I think anyone can learn to experience this expanse and to enjoy it, and also how to create it for themselves. And that they shouldn't feel that they're lesser to these spiritual teachers, that they're being sort of almost flocking to like moths to this light. And then if they get too close, they get burnt. But there's never a sense of passing that ability and that learning how to navigate the expanse for themselves. And in working with teens and children, there is a sense of having an awareness. Like when I was writing the teen book, I sort of sat there and thought about it, thought, you know, it's very hard to put spiritualism into a teen book because 
it's an experience in life that you go through. And personally, I think that there's actually a lot to do with particular planet alignments that you haven't hit and certain cycles you haven't hit in life yet until you're older. And so you just don't have the experiences. And so when I'm doing the practice with teams, I don't put very much emphasis on that area, which is fine. But that doesn't mean that I don't feel that other people can step into it for themselves later. The heart space is a very interesting space because it's all about our openness to the world. And when working with with teams in particular, there's a sort of a generational pattern to be navigated here. How closed you are to the world, how closed you've needed to be to survive, how many secrets you've had to keep to get through. And it's also a very white way of being in the world. And when I work with white people, I find that that area of them is exceptionally closed. But there are other people that I know, other white body people I know, who are very good at integrating and meeting people from other ethnic backgrounds. And they were exceptionally open-hearted. And though they may not have the dialogue and the lingo of the areas that they go to, they are communicating almost energetically in an openness and in a physicality way with people because they have learned to have their heart really open and they've learned to appreciate that connection and that possibility with others. So it's a really big deal. The sacral chakra, or what I what I see as the core that I develop in people, is one of the most controlled zones by religion and education. And since all education is being created by religious orders in one way or another, there's a huge follow-on of that control. There's been a tolerance, particularly in an Irish context, of how religious establishments have been abusing people and controlling people and creating a whole really dirty feel to this whole zone and to people's sexuality but they haven't felt the need to impair people with their own sexuality so it's been a real double standard conversation And they've also particularly tended to target children who were probably questioning their sexuality, which is a really disgusting thing to do. So you have teens who've questioned themselves being outside of this normal parameters of society, who've then been picked on and been abused and then found themselves incapable of relating to their own sexuality and going on that journey for themselves. It's a particularly abusive way to behave towards people. And so, as I said, like I, I really feel that it's only when we step into the comfort and the self-awareness, really ethical sharing of that energy zone with others, that we really feel confident and whole within ourselves. It's, it's a massive, there's a massive correlation for me in that. One of the aspects of my work that I've always kind of quietly worked on 
without really speaking about is that I think that it's really important for teens to have a good first sexual experience. And I think we have to also accept as a society that people are having sexual experiences earlier and earlier. And if those experiences are negative to begin with, they set up a whole tone for life. And actually quite an unhealthy tone in how we learn how to control and abuse others from that energy zone. So like, I think it's a really worthwhile exercise to really take people into their body and for them to really feel it. So embodied practices being overgrounded. Most meditation practices tend to focus on your root chakra. And I did one for 19 days earlier this year. I was meant to do it for 21, only I forgot. And it was like as if all the lights were turned on again. And it was like I could see the stars once more. The practice was meant to open my heart, was meant to ground me. It was meant to make me feel more secure in my own voice, to feel less fear of being persecuted, being in the world, to leave a lot of maybe my distant past experiences behind. But I had no inspiration. I couldn't write. I couldn't record podcasts. I felt like the whole world had been turned off. I felt like as if someone had just pulled this blackness over me and I compared it at the time to how a lot of duality in people is is treated with a lot of medication. And one of the downsides to that medication is always that they lose all of their creativity. And so it really made me ask big questions around this in terms of, as well in terms of using embodied practice to really help people with mental illness in a different way. So for me, there's a balance between feeding the body and being in the body. And most just want us to be in the body. They don't want us to feed it from the expanse. And that's partly, again, back to this control in, within the spiritualism community, where you only have certain people who are capable of this, and they have their star release in each status. So this is why I, I, all of this journey is why I chose to use the on-point practice, which I've spoken about before, and I'm going to put a link into the No Big Deal Sit again, which I linked in another podcast before. This, this journey that I've gone on, the reason I've gone back to this practice is because it's been a fascinating journey that I've worked my way through understanding the impacts of each of those areas and understanding the abuse and the trauma zones. The crown, which I affectionately call the star zone, the heart and the core. And when I had dismantled the experiences and seen the benefits of each of those areas, I then took the practice to teens and kids. I reduced the time enough for them to drop into point and to go off point. And I've I've struggled in coming to record this podcast and how much I want to go into how the practice works and how much I don't. I kind of don't. I would like you to go and experience it from the person who develops the practice and whose practice it is. Because I think that's a really important thing to do and I think it's, it's more honouring to them as well. So the practice was developed by Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams and I will put a link to that No Big Deal Sit space. 
So I'm not really going to go into the explanation of what point is and what off point is. But I reduce the time enough for them to have a reflection of the change taking place within them, the change at the start of how they felt and their awareness in their body to a sense of drifting and going off point and experiencing what Reverend Angel talks about is turbulence. And then a sense and an awareness of time, which is the last touch point. And so I also have whole families doing the practice together so that they can understand the benefits of sharing experiences openly and overcoming generational, generational patterns and the, the habits maybe that they formed and also the physicality that they formed and how they've actually closed off their heart area or in some cases, because as I said, culturally, it's a very white way to be in the world. So they may not have even ever questioned that you can travel through the world in an open-hearted way. It may not be something that they've ever experienced. And in many ways, many of our demands of teams are their ability to be able to do this and their ability to be very expressive and very in their physicality. Like there were big demands in creating TikToks to have the ability to do that. And a lot of teams are following people on YouTube channels who are talking about experiences that they experienced when they were their age, but they're actually recording them much later. And like, there's a huge difference between someone being 15 and being 20. It's a massive change in comfort zone. And so they often want to be the 20 year old with the physicality and the openness and the experiences of the 20 year old. And they're having an expectation on themselves that they should be able to be that person. So that's another dynamic. We're not being very honest at the moment about people's ages on social media. Like even Greta Thunberg is being marketed still as a child. Well, she's not actually a child anymore. So there's another aspect to this, which is really messing with people's heads and their expectation of where they would like to be in their physicality and what they're being influenced by in the world within that physicality. For children who have such vulnerability issues, I'm keen for them to not have any more bad experiences, especially when I've outsourced them to other experiences that have been traumatic, that I didn't expect them to be traumatic. And so I'm really keen, <laughs> and, you know, sort of held up my hand and gone, you know, Thank you for trying some of the things we suggested, and I'm sorry they were so horrible. I didn't expect them to be so horrible. So I'm going to make a promise to you now that when we do this, it's not going to be horrible. And so with that in mind, I'm being extra cautious. And I only encourage them to do the practice after school on Friday, to do it for the weekend on Saturday and Sunday, but to not yet do it during the school week because I don't feel that they're ready to be in school in this sort of open-hearted, exposed, vulnerable way. And, and in fact, many of their fears are around showing the world that vulnerability. And so it's like gradually opening a rusty sealed door. And you have to accept that that may take more time. And I would rather take time. <laughs> this is another part of my work which people find 
um, kind of odd at times. You know, I will peel back layers slowly and I'll do them in certain orders. I don't care if we have to spend a month only doing this three days a week. If we get to a place that feels secure and safe and then they are ready to do, to, to do this more while actually being in the world in the places that are uncomfortable for them. For those who want to experience the expanse of this and kind of feed their core with the energy, the one limitation I see is that there is a need to do the practice together with somebody who is used to channeling that energy. And also in grounding the energy, and that's not being grounded. It's not that you're focusing on grounding your body, you're focusing on grounding some of the energy in it. Because if you do this with someone who is capable of feeling the energy, they can feel the fragmentation in your body and almost the over-energy of it. A big part of my work is that I do feel energies in other people's bodies. It's how I know whether they're comfortable or not, whether they're feeling closed or whether they're feeling open or whether they're, they, they are grounding themselves or not. So yes, this is a long podcast on my journey of intaking body practice work, taking that on and not outsourcing it. But maybe by recording podcasts such as these, you can think about what you're really doing with others, your level of control or not, your openness, your closeness. How do you honor energy? How do you share it with others? What are your motivations in sharing it? Why do we benefit from collective meditation spaces? Which songs of your body are you working on in many meditation practices? How focused have you been on grounding your body, being grounded, being in your root chakra? So there's a lot of questions within this. So it's a very different practice for me and it allows to work on very different zones in a very different way. And it allows a lot to be fed and a lot to be open to the expanse. So I will share a link again to Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams' space. I am reluctant to talk through the specifics of the on-point practice. I would prefer, especially as adults, if you travel to that space and experience it for yourself.